and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. I'm really excited to share this episode of the podcast with you. We filmed this last year on an unexpectedly lovely day in Borland Loch Tay in the Scottish Highlands. The eagle-eyed among you may notice me turning progressively crimson throughout the episode as the small part of me that's Scottish slowly combusts in the unexpected sunshine. But we had a really, really incredible discussion despite this with Merrick Denton-Thompson. He's a past president of the Landscape Institute and has done a truly incredible range of things throughout his career. Um, most of the UK's most characterful landscapes really owe Merrick a lot, and his support and everything he's given me over the years has been really invaluable to me. So I want to take this opportunity to say another massive thank you to Merrick for giving us his time here. So over to Merrick. But first, it's important to remember sustainability doesn't just relate to the environment. It relates to your finances as well. That's why we have switched to Beans Accountants. Beans operate on a package system, so you always know where you stand. We halved our accountancy costs by moving to them, and one of our associates just reduced theirs by two thirds. And with free tax advice and accountancy support, you cannot go wrong. So make sure you check out Beans Accountants in the description below. I'm joined here today by Merrick Denton-Thompson, a good friend of mine. Um, he's really supported me and taken me under his wing um, during my start in the landscape profession. He's been incredibly kind in hosting me and my wife as well this weekend while we're up here in Scotland. So I just want to firstly say a huge thank you for that. And also a thanks for letting us do an initial podcast with you as well um, as, a, as a test for the series. So thank you very much for giving us your time again. Really, really appreciate it. America is an incredible man who's done a huge amount of work across the environmental world, um, influencing everything from farming to education. And I'm really interested to talk to you about what you've been up to. And we, we met um, when you were president of the Landscape Institute, um, which had a huge role in influencing government. So it's going to be really interesting to find out about the impacts and the troubles we're having with the environment at the moment and how education and everything is changing as well. So. Um, yeah, so thank you again for, for coming on, and um, I really look forward to talking to you about all of these things. Oh, it's a great pleasure now. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very welcome. So the first thing I wanted to ask you really was um, a bit about your background. You know, you've had such a role in the environmental world, and I'd just like to know a bit more about how you came into it and some of the work you've been doing recently. Well, I, I qualified in 1972, and I was told by my university, never work for local government and never worked for more than two years in your first five jobs. I've really only had two jobs the whole of my life. <laughs> um, and I applied for uh, the job in uh, Portsmouth City Council, uh, which is where I started in 1972. I uh, worked there for six years, very heavily deprived city, uh, quite corrupt actually, parts mm. of it in those days. Um, uh, even had a child suicide rate like any other, no other city or town had in the UK at the time. Mm. Um, but it attracted me because there were a lot of slum clearance, a lot of uh, new infrastructure, pedestrianisation, new motorways, um, uh, uh, pedestrianisation, new city centre. So it was a very, very exciting environment to, to work in. But I got very frustrated because my brief as a, 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 a young landscape architect coming into the profession was always uh, ill-informed. Mm -hmm. um, and one of our challenges is, is to make sure we have intelligent clients, frankly. And the only way I could really see myself influencing that was to move closer towards uh, uh, planning, strategic planning. So I was very lucky to be appointed as the county landscape architect for Hampshire in 1978. 
uh, a big um, population of 1.7 million, two very big cities, Portsmouth and Southampton, um, and of course, Winchester is another, another city, county city. Um, and uh, so I spent the, the, uh, the next uh, really 15 years deeply immersed in strategic planning. So my team uh, built in the environmental policies for long-term planning. Um, I was also head of the countryside service, um, so I was deeply immersed in country parks and in the designated landscapes. Uh, Hampshire was very lucky. It had, uh, it had at the time uh, five uh, areas of outstanding natural beauty. Um, um, and now, of course, we've got two new national parks, and I was in, deeply immersed in setting up the, both the two new national parks, the South Downs and the New Forest, um, and three areas of outstanding natural beauty. Um, so it's a very, very rich county, very diverse in terms of its, its soils as well. Very acid soils of European lowland heath, internationally important, um, but very alkaline soils on the chalk, um, uh, which has its own own problems. So I was very fortunate. Um, and then um, I was involved with uh, agriculture very early on, actually, um, mm. because I was an agent for the Countryside um, Commission in the early 1980s, when I was investing public money uh, on planting of woodlands and hedgerows, only to discover that the European Union was actually grant aiding the extraction and the demolition of hedges and woods. Uh, and I thought, this is ridiculous. We're spending public money, putting right public money. Um, mm. And what a, what a terrible waste. Yeah, it's just unbelievable, really. It, it was quite shocking. Um, and so very early on, um, I uh, actually went over and gave evidence to the European Parliament on the impacts of the common agricultural policy on the, on the UK landscape. Uh, that was in, in 1985. And at the same time, um, I managed to get involved with the policy unit in 10 Downing Street. Well, how, how was it received in, in Europe? How do they respond to, to um, they, they They responded by recording everything I said, but mm. doing nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's this issue of um, Europe has this glowing reputation, environmental re reputation. Of course, m a lot of the European environmental policies were written by, by the UK, yeah. by people from Wales. Uh, Grant Lawrence, for example, a very, you know, very able Welshman who wrote a lot of the environmental policies. So actually, the UK had an enormous impact well, upon... Even now, it's quite surprising, really. I, I was invited to um, an event on forestry in Europe, um, in Brussels, and um, I was shocked the majority of the consultants were British, many of them living in other countries, but the majority were British. It was quite reassuring, actually. You often don't see it, you know, and you see it in other parts of the world as well now. A lot of big environmental projects are British-led, um, happening all over the world. But you don't, ironically, you don't seem to see a lot of the big projects happening here, which is very strange. Well, a lot of, there was a lot of alarm when we mm. decided to move out of Europe. Um, and a lot of the uh, environmental agencies were very concerned that uh, the environment would take a hit in terms of the UK. Um, actually, what was happening in Europe is exactly the same as happens in this country. You get DG Agriculture, the Director General Agriculture, very powerful, particularly with the Germans and the French, for example, and then DG Environment. Mm -hmm. And there was a clear separation from yeah. the two. And I, it, it sounds like a provocative thing to say, but I can tell you in, in, in the 50 years that I've been working in this profession, uh, 
uh, I can sum up the, 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 the biggest impact on the environment has got nothing to do with development. Mm -hmm. The biggest, by far the biggest impact um, on our environment has been our farming practices. And essentially, we in the UK have devolved responsibility for uh, farming and the farming consequences uh, for the last 50 years to, to Brussels. Mm -hmm. um, and now with this uh, uh, shifting away from Europe, we're now grappling with some of the really big issues. Um, and they, they really are very, very serious. Yeah. Um, so, if, so what are some of these issues? What are the big issues we're facing? The, the, the big issues I think that we're facing is about the science. The science has been very, very clever, but no, nowhere near clever enough. So um, all of our pesticides, for example, you talk to universities like Cranfield University and they will accept the, the unintended consequences of our, the family of pesticides that we pour on the land have never been properly explored. Um, uh, and the same can be said for um, uh, all our increases in fertility of things like nitrates, the impact of nitrates. And let's just explore that for a moment or two. Um, I've been working in a landscape in southern England, you know, this great belt of chalk. Um, if I tell you now that um, there are places in southern England where we are importing water to dilute the drinking water, because the nitrate content now in the drinking water is poisonous. Mm. Um, there are places now along the south coast where you can see the nitrates um, um, moving out of the aquifers into our rivers, into our estuaries, and onto the sea. So if you look at places like Southampton Water, for example, where we've got intertidal zones that are internationally important for migratory birds, covered in slime, covered in algae, because of the uh, uh, nitrogen being, uh, nitrates being washed out of the aquifers into the sea. And this is directly impacting internationally important uh, habitats. Um, so the pollution of our uh, seas and our aquifers is just one issue. So if you look at the way we apply nitrates, um, I'm sorry I haven't got the figures for last year, but for the year before, 19, uh, sorry, 2019, we put on a million tons of nitrates on farms in England. Um, half of that gets to the crop. Uh, a quarter of it goes into the aquifer or is washed off into our rivers, ditches, rivers, and into the sea. A quarter... Uh, and it does depend on humidity levels, goes up as nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is 300 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of a climate change gas. The implications of putting a million tons of nitrates on our land means that we are emitting 75 million tons of carbon dioxide just on that one farming operation. Gosh. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's very serious. And then the other issue about nitrates, of course, and again, uh, the chalk landscapes of southern England is a classic example. Nitrates get washed off um, and, and into our verges and, and uh, hedgerows where the fertility levels are um, exacerbated. And uh, hence, you get things like nettles, docks, um, thistles, the very aggressive plants, 
sh sh shrouding out, really, removing the diversity of our plant life, which of course is uh, the foundation of our, our wildlife systems. So this increase in fertility in certain places, particularly in marginal land, is also having a very serious impact upon um, biodiversity as well. Um, our pesticides, uh, well, the, the story of glyphosate, I, mean, I remember when they, they launched glyphosate and I remember the chap standing on television saying, I'm prepared to drink this. Actually, he didn't do it in, in, the, in front of the camera. Um, but it wasn't uh, uh, two years uh, after the research was done that we established if you, if you get glyphosate anywhere near water, it'll kill all amphibians dead. Uh, frogs, toads, newts, um, absolutely devastating on our amphibians. And now, of course, there's a, a lot of research going on, and we should have predicted this mm. as, as landscape scientists. We should have predicted it. It's not directly affect the, the, the honeybee, but what it is doing is destroying the gut flora, uh, notice the words, mm. um, to our, our invertebrates, which, which is, of course, um, meaning that their immune system is broken down. So indirectly, it has this devastating impact upon our invertebrates. So not only does it kill all the food plants, it's also now directly affecting the gut flora of our invertebrates and therefore, um, uh, and, and therefore has a direct and indirect effect upon our, our uh, invertebrates. And of course, our invertebrate populations have absolutely crashed in the oh, last 40 years. In, indeed. I mean, I remember, well, I'm, I'm from the same area as you. I'm originally from Hampshire, grew up around there, lived in the New Forest for a bit, um, lived on the edge of Surrey, you know, I know that area very, very well. Um, and I remember as a child, you know, there being bees and insects everywhere. And I go back now and there just isn't, you know, there just isn't as many creatures as there were when I was little. Um, which is shocking because it's, a very, it's still very rural, a lot of the areas I lived in. It's really, really worrying. But also, you gave me a really interesting example last time we spoke about just how far the reach of some of these chemicals goes. Yeah. You know, and one of the examples was Antarctica, wasn't yeah. it? That's right. With DDT. Yes, well, there you are. DDT now found in the, uh, in the skins of the emperor penguin in the Antarctic. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think the, you know, there's a lot of alarm about plastics in the sea. Actually, the, the, the next catastrophe is going to be all about the chemicals uh, in, in our aquifers, um, in, in our seas, um, on our land. Um, uh, and and um, uh, we really need to fully understand uh, the impacts of these. We can no longer tolerate the unintended consequences because they are having um, a devastating impact upon our on the health of our natural capital. So we must welcome Dieter Helm's um, work um, on um, pressing the government to understand that the elements of life, that's my interpretation of natural capital, in other words, clean air, clean water, not just water for us humans to drink, but for, for life itself. Um, the microbial health of our soils, and I, I must just emphasize this point, um, because um, the condition of our soils in the UK now is quite shocking. Yes, it does depend on different soil types. The chalk soils, I think, is probably one of the most uh, 
um, uh, devastating uh, quality issues that our, our chalk soils are very mobile, so we've lost huge volumes of, of soil washed off uh, the fields, even the, the gentlest of slopes. Um, uh, but the microbial health of the soil is now rock bottom. So things like um, fungi, the, the fungal content of our soils is critical for the release of nutrients, uh, for the creation of, of soil itself, of that interface between uh, the subsoils and the geology with the topsoil. Um, we've, really, we've really got to understand that so much of our food now is tasteless because we have failed now to recognize that the nutrient content uh, of our soils and therefore released into our foods is a critical element uh, of uh, the food we eat. So we're going to have to be much smarter about our soils. And um, I would actually, I'm urging government. Um, I mean, this government is not going to improve regulation. I'm quite sure of that. Um, but I think the farming industry, they appreciate that there's got to be change now. So they are, they are accepting uh, that things have got to change. We've got to move into a position where uh, secure, sustainably produced food is seen to be a public good. Um, and we are really now going to have to look very closely at, at, at getting the farming industry to follow the money. So we, this is a wonderful moment in time, which is going to go away very quickly. The government have set up a new environmental land management system. It has three components to it. Um, sustainable uh, farming incentive, uh, nature recovery, um, and landscape recovery. Uh, and the... We don't know the details yet. It'll come on side uh, online in 2024. Um, and I'm helping uh, the government with through their test and trials program uh, on, on a couple of big projects, and I can come back to those later. But the main principles of this is that um, before, uh, through the European investment, it was seen to be subsidizing farming, uh, farm subsidies. The public, of course, had no knowledge of, of what that subsidy is delivering. So there's no accountability. As far as the general public is concerned, oh, that's the Range Rover budget, money going to very wealthy people already. And of course, that is absolutely not the case. If you look at the profit margins of the farming industry, uh, uh, for 60% of profits is actually public investment. So you can see uh, if we suddenly switch off the public investment to support the farming industry, that'll have a devastating Im impact upon uh, upon our farming uh, our farming colleagues. So the investment strategy is now moving away from subsidising farming uh, to a public goods for public money basis. Uh, and uh, we again we don't know the detail, but. We think that what we're going to end up with is management plans, farm management plans, which basically take their business aspirations and align it with the public goods agenda. Um, and, and then there will be long-term management agreements where the farming industry will then be delivering clean water, clean air, 
Um, it'll be delivering a transformation on the microbial health of our soils. It'll be delivering del um, resilience because one of the biggest threats to the farming industry is actually uh, instigated by climate change, but actually it's the, um, the weather patterns that we can no longer rely on. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's critical to the farming industry. At least they've had a, a stable sequence of weather patterns. That is gone. Whether it'll ever return, I have no idea. So building resilience is a is a massive challenge. Um, just to just to pick up on some of these points. So in terms of building resilience, what what else do you mean? So obviously we know weather patterns are changing. We're getting increasingly drier spells that last longer, and we're getting heavier rain over shorter periods of time, which is making things very very difficult because the ground becomes hard. It runs straight off and straight into our rivers and and locks and wherever else it may it may go. Okay. So what what other what other issues are there? Well, let let me give you an example of of the sort of things that is now happening, in terms of the two points you've made about uh, periods of drought, um, periods of of very heavy uh, uh, precipitation. Um, one of the uh, pieces of work that I'm doing with the, with the farming industry is uh, no longer relying upon monoculture in terms of our grasslands. Uh, our strategy now is to encourage the farming industry to adopt a very strong herb content to our grasslands, which gives you a different uh, root profile because each of the herbs have different um, optimum positions in the soil profile. Uh, so Hampshire sandfoin, for example, which is very good at fixing nitrogen from the air, um, is a very, very deep rooting plant. And it, 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 it works away at that interface between the chalk and the, and the soil. Um, now, what does that do? Um, that diverse herb-rich grassland addresses both of your two points. The first point is, immediately you are quadrupling the content of water that that topsoil can hold at times of real stress in terms of heavy uh, precipitation. But um, the, the, the other issue is that um, because of the depth and because of the buildup of organic matter, um, in periods of drought, um, that grassland will still thrive. And indeed, plants like Hampshire sandfoin are very, very drought resistant. So I can show you farms where uh, two years ago when we had a very, very dry end of the summer, the farming industry were having to bring in their, their winter feed to feed their stock in the summer. Um, now, the farm I'm working on at Chalderton, and it's entirely the, the, the farmer's knowledge and skills that has, has enabled this to happen, uh, he had no problems in that drought period. His cattle were, and sheep were grazing outside throughout the period. He didn't have to import uh, food. Uh, so there's the, the indication of being very resilient to drought, uh, but also extremely resilient to heavy precipitation. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying those are the only solutions, but I'm just giving you an example Indeed. of the sort of thing we've really now got to encourage. And, the, and, and it's coming from the farming industry. We need now uh, to, to promote uh, the sustainable farming systems that are already out there. So we're, we're doing a lot to help them um, uh, uh, build the knowledge in the in the community, the wider community, as the sort of things that the farmers are having to address today. Exactly, and I mean that's a really good point because these plants that are nitrogen fixing, 
that removes the need for having to put the, a lot of these fertilizers and things on Absolutely. In, the, in the first place. And there's some really good examples coming around from agroforestry and all this type of thing of other plants. We know willow, um, not willows, alders and things like that do it as well. So there's a, the option to incorporate trees within agricultural systems. And going back to soils, I was, I was at Harvard University recently um, looking at some of their soil trials um, in their forest research site, which was just yep. a forest. Um, and they're doing a lot of, of um, samples on microbial content in the soils and how it's being affected yep. by climate change. And they're really, really worried because as soils get warmer, yep. um, the microbial content again is changing yep. and it's beginning to emit carbon. Yep. So currently soils are, are a huge store of carbon and there's a huge risk that they're going to start emitting carbon. So we need to be preemptive in how we cool them and make them more resilient, as you say. And one of the options I'm really interested in is agroforestry and how we can use that. Yes. And as you say, um, you know, with winter feed, some farmers, um, I, I visited a farm, I think it was in Shropshire a few years ago, where they've created corridors of trees along the farm against the wind, so it makes it more sheltered for animals. The soils are cooler and they harvest, well, they can harvest, I'm not sure if they're doing it yet, but some other farms I've been to in the States have started to do it, uh, where they're topping all of the trees harvesting all the top of the trees and using that as a hay. And, and they move the cattle much more frequently than you normally would do, yep. which allows them to have a larger herd of cattle on a smaller area. So actually, in a way, it's more intensive because they're getting timber, yep. um, hay, uh, or tree hay, more cattle, the soils are more resilient, they need less fertilizer and other things to, to deal with the land. Um, and they can also get timber and fruit and nuts and everything else if they leave the trees for that. So it's a much more productive system and a much more resilient system, which and is I, better for, for a multitude of reasons. And I think the important point you're making is that this is about the future. This is mm. about new um, agri-science. Mm. Um, new research is now needed to pick up the very points that you're talking about. It's really about harnessing the power of natural systems rather than suppressing them. Because that's what our farming systems have done in the past. They've suppressed nature. They've mm. suppressed the power of natural systems. Now we need to release it. Exactly. Um, and it's a very, very exciting time in terms it is. of it is. science development. Uh, and the research is growing at an unprecedented rate. It's, yep. it's, we just we need to just do, do it quicker. You yep. know, we need to implement these things. Another really good example I've seen is coffee. So a lot of people wouldn't realize that coffee used to be grown in North America and it was basically wiped out by a, by a rust fungus. Um, and we almost lost coffee. Um, and some people were saying one of the reasons we drank a lot of tea back in the day was because coffee essentially got wiped out. So we, we switched over to tea and started drinking a lot more tea. Um, so that's, that's interesting that we're going, we've sort of gone back to coffee again now as, as a favorite drink here in the UK. Um, but the reason, it, well, the way it was saved was through agroforestry. And so what they started doing is they started growing coffee beneath other trees and you would think well that's odd you know they yeah. grow coffee with bananas and, and under much much larger trees so they get more from the land obviously there's less coffee being grown in a sense um, because some of the land is being taken up but they get all the other benefits increased timber but what was really interesting is the fungi is still there so what they've done is and when you think about it logically it kind of doesn't make sense almost in a way because there's more competition from a wider range of species. It's damper, which is what, you, which means you would think the, the fungi would survive. There's less sunlight, um, and there's a lot more competition for water. Um, and a lot of those conditions, you'd think the fungi would do better. But actually, what it's done is it's lifted the plant's natural defenses to a point that it can now fight off the fungi. So there's a, the soil structure is better. There's water retained in the soil for longer. They're more protected from exposure to wind. Um, 
and the, the health of the soil is better because there's more of a variety of plants and fungis in it. And all of those things together have protected the plant and allowed its natural defenses to fight off the fungi. And this is really important because as you said, with runoff of, of um, fertilizers, there's also a serious problem with pesticide use as you've, also, as you've also covered. So if we can start using these systems to mitigate that as well, we're really onto a winner and there's a huge amount of opportunity, but the present systems don't support this for farmers. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the whole pesticide family are all about trying to get to a monocultural situation. And uh, we now need a new biosecurity strategy, which actually says, uh, summarizes really what you've just said. The diversity, the, the greater the diversity, the more robust, the more resilient um, the landscape. And, 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 and that ought to become a national policy. Uh, a biosecurity national policy that the greater the diversity um, means means you've got the the most robust, the most healthy healthy landscape in terms of outcomes. But let's just also mention, of course, we're a tiny island. We're very heavily populated. We are going to also have to accept the principle of land sharing rather than land sparing, and. Um, multifunctional outcomes from land. And I've already talked about the natural capital agenda of clean water, clean air, uh, microbially healthy soils, a building of resilience. But we've also got to acknowledge that the state of um, mental health and physical health in this country is shocking. And we really have got to modernize our access to the countryside. Um, we've already got a rights of way network. Um, remember, the public need to remember this, that the, this, this is really about going from A to B and protecting the ability of somebody going from their home to their church and back again. Um, uh, now we need to modernize access. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping that the government have accepted the principle that provided the farmer um, uh, is given the choice and provided that it's a permissive access, uh, the government will invest in the modernization of access. So you can start out in a village and return on different lengths of walk, different qualities of walk. Um, and and uh, not just villages, bus stations, railway stations, um, you know, other forms of transport as well. So rather than more national trails, we've already put a lot of energy into national trails. Now the focus is on meeting local needs. Mm. Um, and that's incredibly important because it also then makes sure you've got a cohesive reconnecting of town with country. Indeed. And so but the local people begin to really value the local farmer. And, and that's an incredibly important point. But I must add the final point on that. Clearly, there is an issue about things like dog worrying animals, uh, about vandalism, about theft. So there is a cost. We can't just say to the farming industry, you've got to allow permissive access, you've got to have right to roam. Absolutely not. There is a cost and there's got to be a proper recompense back to the farming industry to modernize access. That is in no way doing anything with the rights of way system. That remains, that remains a legal obligation. Um, and this philosophy of permissive access um, paid for is a philosophy that both extremes of the arguments, the ramblers, and I've had this debate with the ramblers, and I've had this debate with the Country Landowners Association and National Farmers Union, they agree. Both mm. of these extremes actually agree 
on this this philosophy. So that's that's fabulous. We're making real progress. We mustn't forget the historic environment. Um, you know, the chalk in particular um, is laced with prehistoric uh, field systems, um, burial mounds. These are really important in terms of the sense of place, uh, but really important for education and further research uh, into the Iron Age, Bronze Age and, and Roman periods. And the chalk landscapes we were talking about earlier, they are littered with um, prehistoric remains, which are crucial in terms of the natural heritage. So we've got to think about this multifunctional outcomes of land management. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, back to the point of accessibility of the countryside, you know, what better time for that to be on the public agenda? Yeah. You know, COVID has shown Absolutely. us that we need access to these places and people are really valuing it in a way they've not valued before. People have explored the local area like never before. And it's a case of how do we keep that momentum? How do we utilize yeah. it? And how do we keep people engaged? Absolutely Really, right. really important. Absolutely right. Um, and on, on the point you just made as well, you know, I'd really like to jump to some of your work on landscape character. Yes. Um, because it's something a lot of people wouldn't have heard of, if, unless you're a landscape architect or a landscape professional. You know, you, it's probably not something you've ever heard of or dealt with before, yep. but it has huge potential um, for influencing how we move forward. And you're behind all of it, pretty much. <laughs> Well, it's, it has a very funny start to the story, and I will tell the story. I mentioned earlier that in 19, early 1980s, I was acting as an agent for the Countryside Commission in uh, giving grants for restocking, putting in new hedges, new woodlands, uh, new, new ponds um, in the countryside in the early 80s when Europe were grant-aiding the extraction, the destruction of all these features. Um, and um, one of my staff came uh, to me very proudly in about 1982, and he said, oh, Merrick, I want you to come out and look at the work I've been doing with Eagle Star on, on their estate. Um, and this was uh, in mid-Hampshire, north of the A303, if anybody knows that road. Um, and he proudly showed me um, these new woods that had been planted. Um, and if I just describe uh, the landscape to you, this was high chalk, um, the, the remains of some fabulous um, oak with hazel coppice. Hazel, of course, coppiced for um, folding sheep on the downs pre-wire, so hazel hurdles were used as a, a fencing material. Um, and many of these wonderful oak and hazel coppice woods had been fragmented, they had been destroyed, um, and there was only a, a framework left with these big arable fields driven straight through these old woods. Um, and um, he had, uh, with the land agent, had replanted some of these, but had made a terrible error in terms of the species. And I said, hang on a second, you've got You've got a really ancient stand type here. We had just, by the way, launched the Wessex Coppice Group to try to encourage coppice workers who are very much like hermits, actually. <laughs> they prefer to work by themselves in the woods, not very good at marketing their products. So we set up a marketing business to try to help coppice workers get a, a proper return from their, their work. And I said, uh, and you've gone and planted poplar and willow in an oak landscape. I mean, this is devastating, and I'm responsible for this because I'm running the program. Now, nobody else spotted this error, but I did. Mm. And I went back and I said to the team, look, we've got to do something about this. We, can't, we must, we must um, prepare proper briefs. And we've really got to look at landscape character because the landscape character 
what is there uh, and what has influenced the landscape in the past is really important and pertinent and relevant to today. Yeah. So we will start mapping landscape character. Mm. Um, and uh, now I must give credit to the two members of staff who, who did the technical work, Linda Tatalia Kershaw uh, and Ray Smith. And the two brilliant brains, they worked really hard. They traveled the whole county. They did a huge amount of mapping, mapping work, aerial photographic analysis, uh, a, a brilliant analysis. And each of those characters were defined by farming. It's really the results of farming and the way we settle on the land um, and how the soils and the ecosystems and the microclimates have responded, mm -hmm. giving you a very specific character defined by that interaction between human and, and natural, uh, natural uh, facilities. Um, so we actually published uh, the first character map of any county in the country um, in the mid-1980s. Um, and then I went up uh, to the Countryside um, Commission's headquarters in John Dyer House in Cheltenham um, and um, uh, spoke to the, the chief executive uh, there and a, a team of people. And they then um, went on uh, with English Nature at the time uh, and they then uh, commissioned, I think it was LUC, uh, to do the character mapping of the rest of the country. Huh. Um, and um, those character maps are uh, incredibly important because Natural England, the new uh, government department, new in 2006, I ought to, I ought to add, um, they have continued with that work. And Chris Bolton in Natural England has done a lot of work to modernize the character map of this whole country. And it's incredibly important if we're now going to be directing investment um, at soil types and, and, and at ecosystems um, and at topography and, and microclimates. And um, this is really going to be critical that rather than having administrative boundaries, district councils, county boundaries, regional boundaries, these are, all, these are all false boundaries. Catchment I'll come back to in a second. Um, these are all false boundaries. The landscape boundaries is really important because you can make a very strong business case for investing in character because you know the landscape will respond in a particular way to that investment. Yeah, but it so, also helps create the sense of place. Well, the sense of place is absolutely critical. Yeah. You know, this country, the United Kingdom, is known for its very diverse character. Mm. You can move across this country. Well, there are 159 different character areas. So this country is very, very diverse in terms of land, landscape character. We've got 159 uh, different character areas, and they are really defined by... Uh, the soils. Um, and so targeting character as being the framework for agenda setting for this multifunctional outcomes is not only very important in terms of sustaining the distinctive character of the place, but it's also the very best framework for getting the best out of natural capital, out of delivering clean air and clean water, out of, out of reinstating the microbial health of our soils and to equip the resilience to these landscapes. So it's going to be incredibly important in the future. Definitely, yeah. I just wanted to pick up a bit more on the sense of place that it 
that it creates. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand what it actually means. You know, how what are they getting from a landscape character? What what does it bring to them? Because it's it's all based on soils. You know, as we as we've talked about, isn't it? And as, as you've said, how the landscape is going to respond, um, which means we can design it design the landscape in ways to get the most out of it yes um, but also give the most back to it and create you know strong ecological systems and a lot of our most diverse habitats and ecosystems come from farming and land management and it's how we bring those back in a, in a sensitive way to reinforce sense of place and we know that a sense of place is very very important for health now there's a lot of evidence showing around mental health because it, it gives you a sense of belonging you know if we take where we are now um, on the edge of Loch Tay in Scotland you know, this is a completely unique, unique landscape. And whilst this is obviously very, very different from some areas of Hampshire, the tree species, the rolling hills, um, the type of agriculture that's used gives people a sense of home, gives people a sense of belonging, all of those things. And there's so much evidence coming forward about how important this is for people, um, because otherwise everyone just looks the same. You know, and there is no differentiation and it ends up being, you know, a, a monoculture of landscape as such everything is is the same and we need that change and the uk you know um on a, from a tourism side um in terms of rural economy and things um i think lonely planet has voted the uk the most one of the most in, well the most interesting country to visit in the world several times now um, and partly it's because of how diverse we are and we need to celebrate that and reinforce it and strengthen it wherever we can I absolutely agree. You, the point you make about social stability is incredibly important in terms of uh, the, the connection, the strong sense of place, the sense of belonging. Mm. Um, and, and now, uh, more than any time, we, we need to see greater stability and that sense of place is, is, is profoundly important. Um, no, I absolutely agree. I think the character is, uh, and 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 we have a slight problem um, because people see characters being a nice to have, not a must have. But I think the point you and I are making is that um, actually the character is a a such a stabilising impact and propped up by a very good business reason for ensuring that you make the best out of your soils and your climate. Um, um, and so your investment is really about working with nature. And that will strengthen the sense of place because you can't do anything about um, the climate and the topography and the geology. And with respect, if we get our soil handling right, you you know, we mustn't do any more about meddling with our soils. We've really got to re-equip our soils to be the rich uh, giver of life that, that they really are. Yeah, definitely. And one of the one of the points you um you mentioned earlier you come back to is around catchments. Because catchments are obviously different. They're a part of the landscape, but and there's a lot of focus on catchment areas. So if you could just I'll certainly talk that. about that because that, that the catchment is inc an incredibly catchment management is an incredibly important activity. Uh, and within these character areas catchment management um is is a crucial um intervention that we need to make. Uh, because not just because of water quality but because of the issues about flooding downstream uh, and those sort of issues and water availability. Um, but catchment boundaries are a mystery to the general public. Um, so the general public know about the new forest because they know about the character. It's, it's you know when you talk about when you talk about the South Downs, they know about the South Downs. When you talk about the South Pennines, they know about the South Pennines landscape. It's they immediately have a picture in their mind. If you talk about 
the catchment, they don't know where the boundaries are, they have no connection with it. And so another point that is very, very important to make now, um, and um, it, it, it is vital, that the character areas can become the way to connect with local people because they they understand uh, the character of the landscape. If you explain to them about the New Forest, they immediately have this image about what the New Forest is, provided they've been there, of course. And this point about um, reconnecting town with country um, uh, is, is vital. Um, you know, we've seen the planning system uh, and the farming system being separated completely. Of course, the farmers are very worried about having to apply planning permission for plowing up a field. We don't want that type of bureaucracy. Um, but there is a need to reconnect town with country and get people to understand the importance of local food, um, uh, the importance of nurturing uh, the land. Um, uh, and we are going to have to reconnect people with food growing, you know, empowering people. And that's what we as a landscape profession do very well. Not only do we support the farming industry in terms of multifunctional outcomes, we also plan the, uh, our urban landscapes and our suburban landscapes, whereby one of our, the functional things we do is to reconnect people with the opportunities for growing their own food. And that is absolutely critical. Uh, we know, again, the health and well-being, not, not only the functional aspect of growing your own food, but there's also huge other benefits. So um, this reconnection, I think, is very important. And I, I also feel very strongly that um, if we're going to sustain the level of investment, which is currently about $3.5 uh, in supporting the farming industry, uh, we've got to make that accountable. We've got to make sure that local people understand what that investment is actually delivering for them. Mm -hmm. You see, Boris Johnson could pass the 3.5 billion to the NHS and the public would applaud him. Uh, no, we must make sure we sustain the investment to help the industry out of the cul-de-sac it's now in. And it's been in, moving in for the last 45, 50 years as a result of the uh, very, very particular type of in intervention from Europe, uh, which has ended up in such an unsustainable farming system. And I think it's worthwhile mentioning another discipline um, we're right now, as we sit here talking, there's a, a deal going on uh, over trading with Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there is alarm in the farming industry. Uh, and I read the NFU's response the other day. Um, and they were, they were concerned that um, the, the cheap cost of, of producing beef in Australia would undermine their businesses in the UK. Um, they fail to make a very important point, and it is one that this nation must take very, very seriously. It's all very well setting carbon targets and, and lawfully setting them, but you must not be allowed to bypass those targets by importing food that is um, polluting somebody else's water, that is uh, emitting uh, uh, nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide, uh, which is affecting us all. We should not allow any food to come in this country unless it, is, it meets sustainable food production targets that are uh, aligned 
with our own commitment as a nation to move to a net zero uh, carbon emissions strategy. Absolutely. Absolutely, completely agree. And this is the this is the trouble, isn't it? This is one of the big concerns from a lot of people is outsourcing. Well, you see it with plastics, don't you? Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of the recycling is being outsourced. It's absolutely ridiculous. What's the point? You know, what's the point of recycling if it's just all going to be shipped off somewhere else absolutely. and not properly dealt with? You know, un un undermines the entire initiative. Um, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about um, public money for public good or um, the impact of Europe on farming. Um, on either of those anymore. We've talked a bit about public money for public good, but perhaps um, what sort of interventions do you see? We've obviously talked about butter access. We've talked about improving soils, but is there anything else you, you think is really important that's included in the public money for public good? And also what is the public money for public good? What, what do they actually mean by that? So the uh, expression public money for public goods uh, came out of uh, the 25 year environment plan um, and the need to reconstruct our intervention to farming because of Brexit, the decision to come out of Europe. Um, and it, it's an incredibly important um, connection, but one that was completely misunderstood by the farming industry uh, very, very early on. They were terribly worried that they were going to be uh, taken away from food production to, to act as gardeners for a landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and the point that I tried to make time and time again in these early years was to say to the farming industry, no, actually the public goods are just as important to you as a farmer uh, as to the general public. You know, it is vitally important to you as a farmer that you have clean water. If you are, you know, using water to irrigate your farm that is not clean, that is going to directly affect your crops. Um, we now know that the increase in, in nitrates is having such a bad influence on the microbial health of our soils that despite you loading more nitrates on your land, you are going to see your crop production decline. So all of these things are actually central to your business as a farmer. So there is now a beginning of an understanding of that um, yes, I, I appreciate the modernization of, of access um, is seen by the farming industry as a, as a threat. But I think we've now got to a situation where both sides of the extremes of this argument have come to a, a, a consensus uh, that provided it is permissive, provided it is at the choice of the farmer, and provided the government is prepared to invest um, because there is a cost, um, then that public good uh, can be included in the agenda. So these are the public goods are really um, 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 across uh, uh, quite a wide spectrum. It deals with all the natural capital of clean water, clean air. It deals with microbial healthy soils. Um, it's investment in, in resilience. Um, it is going to be investing in the con conservation of the historic environment. Um, it is going to be investing in, and the great thing about Michael Gove was he really accepted the importance of the beauty of the landscape. So um, uh, investing in the character, that point that we made, that the character is important in terms of social stability, but also there's a very strong business case for that. Um, and modernizing, so modernizing access, historic environment and landscape quality. So those are the, that's the level of public goods. 
And they, they've come out of quite a long debate, as I mentioned in, in 85, I did some work with the uh, Downing Street Policy Unit uh, with William Waldegrave and, and, and uh, John Gummer, now Lord Deben. Um, and they were respectively the Minister of Agriculture and Minister of, from the Department of Environment. Um, because in those days they were separate departments. And that then gave birth to the countryside stewardship scheme in the uh, mid to late 80s. Uh, I was then asked to, by DEFRA, to sit on the Agri-Environment Review Group under Jane Brown. Um, and I worked in the, the, in the group that set up the environmental stewardship uh, program, the higher level and entry level schemes. Um, and that was... Uh, really all about saying that the countryside, the original countryside stewardship scheme was was really only uh, um, being taken up by about 30% of the farming industry. So we had about 70% of the farming industry that had nothing to do with uh, environmental land management. The entry level, the idea of the entry level was to start having a conversation with another 35% of the farmers to begin to introduce uh, in environmental practices, but not to intervene in any way. So it was the beginning of a conversation. Um, Owen Patterson, when he took over as Secretary of State, made a, a fundamental error um, in saying, oh, no, the entry-level scheme must go because it's not delivering sufficient public goods. Uh, and, and he just completely missed the point. He just had no understanding that this was about a long-term conversation with moving the industry to being more sustainable. Uh, what he did do, though, in, in scrapping the environmental stewardship program, he then introduced the new countryside stewardship, so the second version of countryside stewardship. Um, and that is now forming the base to the new environmental land management system, which will start operating in 2024. Um, and, and as I said, that's got three components, sustainable farming incentive and nature recovery. Um, and landscape recovery. Now, could I just make one strong point about this? Uh, you really uh, must, the government must accept that uh, all three of those components might be contributing uh, to uh, every farm eventually. Um, and I think we would argue uh, um, now, wouldn't we, that without firstly tacking uh, um, tackling the microbial health of the soils, we will never get nature recovery. At the moment, we're gardening for individual species. So we're spending tens of millions of pounds pursuing individual species here and here, stone curlew plots, for example. Um, unless you get the biological quality of the soil right, uh, you will never, ever uh, uh, recover nature in the comprehensive way that we now need to achieve. Indeed, but it's a long it's a long term investment. You know, you have to look at it like that. It's absolutely it, because the otherwise it's a short term gain. Yeah. You know, if if you're investing in some of these individual species, absolutely, you're never getting to the root of the problem, and the root of the problem is the degradation yeah. of our soils and landscape. Yeah. And until you fix that, it's piecemeal. Yeah. As soon as the funding stops, the species goes. Yeah. Whereas if you tackle the other one, even if the funding stops, there's potential for it yes. to thrive and carry yes. on, yes. Um, and the and the landscape to regenerate itself. And I think that's a really you know that's that has to be key, and that has to be clear, and hopefully obvious to a lot of the people that are involved at the moment. You know, we need to regenerate the system, not just the service. So may I just give you an example? You talked about public money for public goods. Um, 
Uh, I'm working with Henry Edmonds at Chalderton, which is a three a 2,500 acre farm on the Hampshire Wiltshire border. It's a, a chalk soil. Uh, what makes this farm unique is it, it also runs the largest private water company left in the country, servicing uh, 2,000 uh, people, giving them fresh water. Um, he inherited the estate uh, from his father, who was more of an intensive farmer than he is. Uh, he immediately spotted the problems of nitrate uptake in the aquifer because the nitrate levels were rising and rising to a point when he would have to not be allowed to continue with his private water company. Um, and the great thing about the Chalderton estate is that it is naturally a relatively infertile soil, very shallow soil over chalk. Um, there's uh, 600 acres of the 2,500 acres uh, is grade four, uh, very steep, shallow chalk soils. Uh, the remaining 1,900 acres are, uh, are um, uh, grade three. He runs two dairy herds, um, a, a beef herd, um, a flock of Hampshire down sheep, um, and half the farm is arable. Um, now, he puts not a grain of nitrates on his land. He fixes nitrogen through his integrated crop management system. Um, he puts no pesticides on his land at all. Uh, so, for example, there is a, a very vicious um, slug-eating beetle. The only place you can find this beetle now, and I'm sorry I can't remember its Latin name, is on the Chalderton estate. So his whole strategy, his whole biosecurity strategy is to create the, the most diverse uh, invertebrate and plant life on his farm. Plant Life have just made a big announcement that the Chalderton Estate is the richest uh, farm for arable weeds anywhere in the country. So he is running a perfectly productive farm uh, and we've just done the natural capital account for the Chalderton Estate. Uh, now, natural capital accounts look forward, so it's a 60-year progression. Um, and the account has come up with this conclusion. We're predicting a 5.8 million pound food production value, and we are predicting 117 million pounds of public goods. And that just shows you the contrast and that's giving, at last, a value to the unintended consequences of farming. Mm -hmm. Now, Chalderton, of course, is competing, barely competing, with 80% of farms on the chalk where the unintended consequences have never been accounted for. Mm -hmm. So it's unfair competition, and competition which, frankly, should have been regulated through our regulatory system, and that has failed us. So what we're doing is using this farm management plan for the Chalderton Estate um, as the, the basis of public money for public goods. And it demonstrates that there's a new science around agriculture that can drive, that we can produce enough food for this country by harnessing the power of natural systems rather than suppressing them in the way that 80% of farms do it today. Indeed, but it also shows that it's um, profitable. I said it's barely profitable. It is profitable, but barely profitable. And that's because, of course, as I said, he is competing mm -hmm. uh, with farms where all these accounts have never been done. Uh, 
You know, they, they, nobody is accounting for the greenhouse gas emissions. Nobody is accounting for the pollution of the water that's ending up meaning that the water taxpayer has to has to pay for diluting the drinking water. Well, that's shocking. Mm. No, it, it is. It is shocking. Um, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, it just shows, highlights the problem, doesn't it? It really, does. As much of anything. Um, you know, it's not just about well, it goes to show that it's not just about reinstating these systems and it's getting not. these things in place. There's a much larger issue that needs to be tackled. And we have to look at, again, the whole system. How does the system work? And then how does that support? Because once that's in place, it will support all of these positive actions to take place, which, yes, is, and, which and, is vital. And may I just tell you another little story? I've just taken Dieter Helm round at the Charlton Estate. Um, um, who, who is Dieter Helm? Now, Dieter Helm is the chairman of the Natural Capital Committee that government set up. Mm. He is um, a professor of uh, economics at Oxford University. Uh, he claims to have uh, taught uh, uh, the past three um, chancellors of the Exchequer. Very, very well connected. Um, and it's Dieter, really, who has really raised the profile of accounting for natural capital, the importance of clean water and clean air. And, and, and these are our tools of our trade as a landscape profession. So it's fantastic that he's now got the treasury uh, to understand that there is a real uh, financial issue here, a real cost issue here. Um, so I took Dieter Helm around the Charlton estate and he made um, uh, a couple of very important points. Um, and the one I just want to tell you is that his wife is a plant recorder for Oxfordshire. And he said, at the end of the day, having been round Childerton, he said, uh, can I just admit to you that I've just come from spending a day at the Nep Estate, which of course is being seen nationally as the, the, uh, the best example of rewilding. And he said, um, I can tell you that the Children's Estate is far richer botanically and biologically than the Nep Estate. Uh, and I wanted to tell that story because um, uh, rewilding has its place. Rewilding is a technique to resolve certain issues. But rewilding is about land sparing um, and the Children's Estate is about land sharing. And it is about getting the best out of land. And that's what we as a landscape profession, that's our forte. You know, that's how we work with uh, land managers, uh, with the uh, uh, developing industry, of getting the very best out of, out of all land. So we just had a little break. Um, apologies about the sunglasses, but it's, the sun has come out and I'm, the, the small bit of Scott in me is slowly meaning I'm being roasted. Um, and one of the things I just wanted to query you on, Merrick, um, before we move on, is um, rewilding, as we touched on that with the Nepa State, and what your opinion on the uplands is. Because obviously we're here in Scotland, there's a huge amount of sheep literally right here. Um, and, you know, that's a very, very hot topic at the moment. What do we do with the uplands um, and how do we approach that? And I just really was interested in your opinion on it, because obviously it's such an important area for food production in the UK. A huge amount of the UK is uplands. Um, and a lot of people are saying we have forested or whatever else. Um, what's, what's your view on it? I think my, my, my view on the uplands is that we ought to come to a consensus 
as to what the outcome we want from the uplands as a landscape. And we must take a, a corporate view about all of the interests, not just of the people who live here, which are incredibly important, of course, but also if uh, the uplands are relying on tourism, uh, what, uh, what do the wider public want? Once we've arrived at a consensus, then we prepare our management plan and our intervention systems to deliver that outcome. Um, my personal view is that we are going to have to encourage extensive grazing because I think that um, because of failing uh, world crops because of climate change, because so much of our food production systems, things like fishing is completely unsustainable, um, food shortage is going to be a major world crisis within our lifetimes. And just to pick you up there, I noticed you said extensive, not intensive. I, Very, I specifically yeah. said extensive because the extensive grazing, and, and I have to remind some of our ecologists of this, that some of our richest biological ecosystems have actually been created by extensive grazing. Without grazing intervention, chalk grassland, for example, would be covered in forests and wouldn't be as diverse as chalk grassland is. So extensive grazing and, and forest pasture um, is absolutely aligned with our concept for multifunctional outcomes uh, from uh, our uplands. Um, so yes, uh, certainly uh, rewilding is part of um, our recipe in meeting um, our consensus as to what our ideal landscape for the uplands are. But let's start with what we want and let's, and let's then prescribe um, a, um, a management plan to achieve that outcome and then build the business plan around that. And that means we will have to give our upland farmers um, the right incentives to operate um, a, an extensive grazing farm business. Uh, we value it. We must carry on producing food from these landscapes. Uh, yes, we might be eating a lot more deer. Well, that, that would be terrific. You know, um, uh, deer is, 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 is very good in terms of uh, meat eating. Um, so I think that it's absolutely in line with the idea of multi-purpose, multifunctional outcomes. Yes, of course, uh, we're going to have to encourage walking and hiking and biking. We're going to have to look at renewable energy in a much more serious way. We're going to have to think about um, hydroelectric systems that catches the flashes of our burns. We're going to have to have more um, both uh, uh, sea-based and land-based wind turbines. Uh, yes, of course, we're going to have to do a lot more with uh, tidal um, surges and, uh, and with uh, other marine um, uh, systems for gaining uh, renewable energy because that is equally an important part of the new agenda. Well, I think, um, well, it's two things I want to comment on. First one is I want to ask you quickly about that forest versus grazing discussion, because it's a very difficult one. As you say, there's, there's food production versus forestry, and how do they tally up? And as you say, it all depends on, on what we want. But there is this, and it goes back to that real risk of importing 
and exporting. You know, we're exporting the production of food to other countries which may have less environmental safeguards. And there's a real risk that we have forest our landscape very heavily, but it could have a much more significant impact elsewhere than just us forwarding ours. So well, it's a very difficult discussion of, of how, we, how we approach that. And a lot of people, I think, would say we just eat less meat. Well, I, I, I don't think that the, the answer is eating less meat, actually. I think a balanced diet is something that we, there will be those who will not eat meat for, for, for a, a range of reasons. But I think that if we believe in an inclusive society, we have got to also cater for those who will continue to eat meat. And, and let, let me be frank about that, that with our temperate sort of uh, ge geography, um, actually grassland um, is the most efficient uh, harnessing of food production and therefore grazing is going to be part of the future of our food production systems. Uh, so I, I'm a passionate supporter of extensive grazing uh, in terms of animal welfare just as much as animal health. Um, I actually think that the uplands should be, um, I think that should, we should have a much wiser forestry strategy. Um, from my observations and I can't give you the evidence today, but my observations is that um, uh, the politicians have um, uh, uh, been prepared to invest in the planting of trees, but never invest adequately in the management. And what I see in Scotland is too much of our woodlands being um, being uh, able to deliver pulp for paper making, but very little construction timber, and yet. We import, well, I think we're the biggest importer, one of the biggest importers in the world of construction timber. So we need to be much smarter about our forestry strategies. Um, we need to look back at some of the old stand types, really productive stand types that, that had a purpose. So what, what are stand types for those that might not? Might okay, not stand types. So let's just uh, talk about uh, things like older car. Now, older car is a system of managing older trees by coppicing, by cutting down and letting them regrow. And over a, a 15 to 30 year period, uh, older was actually coppiced, not for, it's, it's a shocking um, uh, uh, wood for, to burn, but it's very good for clog making. Now, I'm not suggesting that all our shoes are going to be made out of older in the future. But the point I'm trying to make is that we need to think about uh, our forestry strategy as, as uh, in the same way as we're thinking about our countryside, that there are multifunctional purposes from our woods and trees. We've got to think about climate change. What we don't know today, we know that we're not going to get a stable weather pattern, but what we don't know is where climate is going to end up. But what I would say is, you know, why aren't we thinking in Scotland about uh, th things like coppice sweet chestnut? Now, sweet chestnut, um, if you cut it at the right time of the year, lasts far longer than any pressure-treated softwood would in, in, in the land. So um, we've got to have modern uses for um, multifunctional uses for, for timber. 
Um, and so I would say, why aren't we experimenting with three chestnut in Scotland? Because it's definitely warmer here, mm. um, and we ought to be thinking about small leaf lime, uh, for example, but, but, old but stand types. Like, well, indeed, but it's also the multifaceted use of these yes. tree species. It, they don't just have to be for timber. No. And that's something we need to look at as well. How do we, again, how do we get the most out of what we're doing? So for example, I've just been in, in Belarus recently, not that recently with all the chaos going on there at the moment. Um, but um, we went there and my um, father-in-law, he, they harvest birch juice. So they like, yep. much like they harvest maple syrup in places like Canada, they harvest burst birch juice and drink a lot of that. It's very, very nutritious. Um, and they use that as a very, very common drink, as a, as a fruit juice, basically. Um, you know, a slightly more interesting version of water, a bit healthier, you know. Um, sweet chestnut, you've got obviously chestnuts. And I, I know you know how much um, that they can compete significantly with some other crops, can't they, in terms of production? Well, yes, if you look at an acre of sweet chestnut, uh, they'll produce the same amount as an acre of corn. It's 10 people's food worth for a year. Now, then you think about what the carbon footprint of producing an acre of corn compared to an acre of sweet chestnut. Exactly. I mean, it is, we, we need to be radical in looking and scoping what the new opportunities are. So food production, nuts, fruit, you know, that is incredibly important now. Um, uh, uh, so it, it, it's really having the same thought about natural capital and multi purpose outcomes from from our forests the the whole issue is about carbon sequestration um, that is going to be really important. We need to understand things that we don't understand today. So for example, leaf fall, the various um, hardwood trees uh, produce huge leaf fall. What is the potential for the sequestration of carbon generated by that sequence of events compared to our conifers and the, the dropping of needles? You know, we need to have that information because we are now looking at land management in a totally new light. It's all about one world living, frankly. It's mm -hmm. about the sustainability of how we live our lives. Exactly. And it goes the same way for the urban areas as well. You know, looking at, at leaf fall again, you know, yep. conifers keep their needles all year. Many yep. of them do. Um, there are some deciduous ones out there. But that has huge potential for air quality as well. Yep. Um, but they're never, or very, rather very rarely used in cities. So actually there, there's huge potential for conifers to be used in cities as well. And there's this kind of massive disconnect between how we use these species. And, you know, and going back to carbon, you've got to think as well, you know, with this, um, with chestnut coppice, for example, or hazel coppice, Using that timber is locking carbon away for yes. long periods of time. Yes. It's not just about burning it for fuel or, or using it for paper. Um, so if you're also getting food production from that as well, but also the other big benefit that people often forget is you get soil structure and stability, yep. which is really important as going back to all the discussions Critical. we had before. Critical. And there's a lot of ways to integrate that in farming systems. They don't have to be forests. Yep. You don't have to create a forest of these things. You know, if you take a, a field boundary, you know, a lot of fields um, in the uplands have huge potential to have their boundaries planted. And there's a lot of evidence to show that that has, you know, a huge impact on um, lamb mortality. Yep. It's significantly reduced. If you look at herds of sheep in bad weather, they're always, you know, beelining it for the tree line. Um, and we, we need to look at that. We need to think about it as, you know, um, the quality of life for animals and the quality of product produced. You can protect crops with it. And it's about thinking, again, about the whole farm. How do we get the most out of these systems, which is, which is really important. And again, I think going back to one of the most important takeaways is probably 
we have to think of the whole system, as you've said many times yes. now, and how we get what we want from it. We need yes. to think what we want from the system and how we yes. design it to get the best yes. we can from it. And some countries are really thinking ahead and making big investments, like Finland, I believe it's Finland anyway, have developed a new biorefinery, which breaks down timber. And timber has a huge range of uses. Yep. You know, the Japanese are using it for satellites. Uh, Koreans are using it for cars. We can now use parts of timber um, I think it's the lignin and the cellulose for insulation, for new LCD screens. You can buy TV screens now that are made from timber. What an incredible <sighs> leap of technology. Um, there's new technologies which can take the color out of it so you can get almost transparent timber, which is unbelievable. So there's a huge range of opportunities to start using, I think in solar panels, some of it can even be used for solar panels and solar you know, can be very polluting. Yep. So we've got to think that is the future. That is the way we are going. We've got to say, right, this is where we want to be. It's not all well and good about just having all these environmental solutions that, that are built with the technology we have now. Yep. We need to think, where do we want to be in 10, 20 years' time and start developing the land? We're at a critical point to develop the land to meet that need. And we have to start looking much further ahead. I absolutely agree with everything you've said. And the other thing I, I thought just to bring up, which might be of interest, because you mentioned about fishing being very unsustainable, but there's some really interesting... Um, regenerative ocean farming models coming out. I don't know if you've seen any of these. Um, and some of the statistics on that are fascinating. And again, exactly the same thing. We're at a critical point to think about how all of our yep. systems, um, you know, in the ocean or on land, um, how, we, how we use them. Yep. And there's a really good um, example being used in, in America. I met the guy and I've completely forgotten his name, but he has a really interesting book called Eat Like a Fish. Very, very interesting. Um, I met him um, when I was doing an event with WWF, and they found that using 5% of America's coastal waters could employ over 50 million people for, for regenerative ocean farming. If the farming is put in the sweet waters of estuaries, it can capture nitrates before they reach the wider ocean and bring them, bring them in. Um, which is good, which is going to actively reduce the dead zones we're now finding yep. in various parts of the ocean. Yep. So they can be put in as a stopgap to mitigate this pollution. Yep. And I know in a previous discussion we've had, going back to the very first thing we discussed about nitrates, this isn't a problem just for now. This is a problem far into the future, as we discussed it affecting penguins in the Arctic. But actually some of these aquifers, they'll be releasing these chemicals for up to 40 years. Yes. So it's not a problem that we're just going to have now. Absolutely we can't right. just stop now and it end. It's going to be going on for a very long period it of is. time. And we need to put methods in to deal with that now. But this farming, these ocean farming systems also have huge opportunities for on-land farming as well. There's lots of um, new species of, of seaweeds and all of this mm -hmm. type of thing, which can be used for cattle to reduce... Um, pollution um, and methane from the farts and all of this type of thing that's a very topical um, thing at the moment as well and how we and how we use those and what's most interesting is if seven percent of um of the world's coastal waters are used there's enough biomass to be produced to offset the entire oil industry so there's absolutely massive potential and the other thing I think that's also missed is when we look at the UK, we know that our oceans are now becoming significantly degraded. Yep. There's a huge opportunity to put some of these systems in place to help some of these systems recover. And some of the farms that have been done off the coast of America now have the most diverse sea life. They've got seals coming into them. All the fish are spawning in them. And the best fishing is now on some of these farms that have been created. So we know we have the solutions and we have to start thinking, actually, 
Let's start looking at putting these in place. Let's regenerate that industry and think how we want that industry to function in the future and what do we want back. And we have to start you know, approaching all of these things. There's a huge opportunity and now's the time to, yep. to really, really embrace it. Yep. Yep. There's some good work going on as well around our shores. We've got marine protection areas now yeah. um, where uh, regenerative uh, um, um, fish populations are now really working very well indeed. So it's it's very exciting, the future. It is. Definitely so. Definitely so. But going from the future to the past, <laughs> I um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your experience as president of the Landscape Institute. So that's when I first met you, it was about three or four, well, probably four years ago now we met. Um, I was a trustee, newly appointed to the board, um, and you were president at the time. And as I said earlier, you know, you really took me under your wing and I'm incredibly grateful for that. I wouldn't be where I am now without all of your support. Um, and I just wanted to really understand how you've come to understand the state of the profession and the challenges we face and the opportunities there are within the landscape profession. And actually, what is the landscape profession? Because there's landscape architecture, but we refer to the landscape profession a lot now. And what's the difference and what's, what are your views? I'm really excited about the landscape profession. Uh, and let me define the, the profession. I, I feel landscape architecture is just one very important character of uh, characteristic of the sorry i'll start again i'm very excited about the landscape profession um we um sit at the interface between people and place between people and natural systems we deploy the arts and the sciences which is almost unique as a profession um and when i say sciences uh, the biological and social sciences are just as important. Um, uh, the landscape profession uh, has been in the past very dominated by landscape architects, which are going to be an incredibly important profession in the future. But we have to admit that at any one moment in time, uh, design is having about a 3% influence upon the state of this country. But this country is changing all the time. And the other 97% of this country are changing as a result of management interventions or policy interventions. Now, defining landscape policy, you need as much imagination and creativity as you do in terms of design, which is the traditional origins of, of, of our profession. So I see the landscape profession as all those who are uh, managing and designing uh, for change um, uh, across the uh, landscape science, landscape management, landscape design um, uh, parts of our, our profession. It's a very complex profession because we touch so much. Everything we do as a profession is in the public interest. So that's an incredibly important point to make. My slight concerns about our education system is what I found when I took over as president, and this is now changing, and I'm the board, the, the board of trustees has recognized this. Um, too many of our universities were majoring on the arts at the expense of the sciences. Um, and I think that that had to be rebalanced because it is critically important that we nurture that interface between people and place, between people and natural systems. 
Um, hence the fact that we can measure on function. Um, too much of the, the expression of design uh, leads you down to society thinking of you as a nice-to-have rather than a must-have. And my belief is that we are in this unique position as a profession to resolve so many of society's problems now. Um, and um, I, I, I believe that if I had my, if I started all over again, I'd, I'd join the landscape profession. Um, I've got a, my eldest daughter's a landscape architect. My youngest daughter is doing a master's degree in soil science. Um, my eldest son is a mushroom farmer and a worm farmer. Um, and my middle son is all about urban regeneration. And um, uh, so I'm afraid all my children are, have caught the bug as well. <laughs> so I'm immensely excited uh, uh, for the future of the profession. I absolutely believe that if you're a geographer and then suddenly want to think of a profession to come into, landscape profession. If you're, um, if you're interested in, in psychology, uh, actually... There's a desperate need for um, you to join the landscape profession because we are we can direct the mental uh, health of people in terms of the opportunities we give society. Um, you know, we can create places for making friends for life. We can create places where you as an elderly person can feel safe and, and can meet and meet other people. Um, uh, so... Um, the, the whole health and well-being agenda, we can support. We can support the whole restructuring of our towns and our cities. Um, I, I talk about landscape infrastructure, not green infrastructure. Green infrastructure means different things to different people. But the landscape infrastructure is fundamental to the health and well-being of society. Mm -hmm. oh, well said. Yeah, definitely well said. I mean, it's, there's such an interesting time to go into these professions because... There's a renewed vigor for collaboration as well as something I've really noticed now. I'm yeah. much more junior in my career, but we need to look much more at who we're aligned with yeah. than opposed to in our silos as we have done in Absolutely. the past. And that's why I think landscape is so integral, is we have a real vital role to play in bringing a lot of these other yes. professions together yes. Um, yes. and bringing in their expertise because yes. no one can do everything. And that's, you know, talking about the landscape professions, it isn't just landscape architecture or landscape management. It's also yep. forestry and ecology, yep. Yep. As, as you've said, yep. um, farming. You know, all of these things have got to come in and we've got to start collaborating yes. more to regenerate yes. this larger, at this the scale that's needed. Absolutely critical. Mm. Absolutely critical. And I think the our, our legislation in this country has been very driven by the planning process, which is all about development and change. And you can understand the economic arguments for that. But now I think we've reached a crossroads when we've got to start thinking about natural resource management and the management of invested in resources. So the whole recycling business. You know, how do we, how do we make places, uh, modernize places? And it's, uh, it's about accepting that that we've made an investment in a in a product that can be repurposed to meet the new agenda, uh, and I, I remember um, a friend of mine, Colin Stansfield Smith, who was the county architect in Hampshire, coming to me in the middle of the uh, building schools for the future program, uh, saying to me, "Merrick, I need help because I'm always being asked to pull down perfectly good schools 
um, when as I could repurpose them for a quarter of the cost of demolishing and, and rebuilding. And why was that? Because the political win of a brand new building uh, prevailed over the need to manage already invested in infrastructure. Well, I think that's a, it's a clear symptom of which affects our profession yeah. quite significantly. It does. The problem with the landscape is it's vast. So when you make changes on a vast scale, you may think, oh, it's going to be very obvious, but actually it isn't. A lot of the landscape interventions are not always that clear, yep. and sometimes for generations. Yep. Um, and that's part of the problem. It's a very difficult, SUDs are a you know, good yep. example. The, the government want to put in big engineering projects for yes. a big win, but actually the benefit of something like sustainable drainage systems is huge in comparison because it meets so many other societal targets. And over time, the impact on the city, way of life, public health, water quality will be significant. Yeah. But actually, it doesn't have that political win that, that people need. Yeah. And that's one of the real challenges that, that we face as a profession, I feel. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And so building on this, um, on the education side of things, you've had a really, really significant role in the education world. You know, working with David Attenborough, you founded the Learning Through Landscapes Trust. Um, which is all about getting kids more involved with the natural world. So can you can you tell us a bit about how that started and, and the objectives and, and what's been happening? Yes, well, I, I was totally spoiled as a child. I was brought up in the Falkland Islands and in, in the Rift Valley in East Africa. Uh, and I remember my school days. I loved every second of it because I was so immersed in the landscape. Um, my first job. Uh, working in Portsmouth, where they were pulling down Victorian schools, building new schools, adding new school, schools to an existing, expanding city. Uh, and I remember the briefs I got, and I remember the tuppence halfpenny that was left at the end of the contract, which left me very little money to do anything, just enough to put a bit of asphalt down, a bit of grass down, and a bit of chain-link fencing, which was actually what the brief stipulated I had to do. Um, and I, 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 I just couldn't stand it. I said, but, but this is really not understanding the needs of children. Here is a captive audience, okay? We have 37,000 schools in the United Kingdom. Um, have those schools been designed to recognize that the landscape is just as important as the whiteboard and the blackboard in the classroom? Um, and I wrote a very rude letter eventually to the Department for Education and Science. And I said, look, this is a huge estate, incredibly value, valuable estate, and you're just not making, making the best use of it. Indeed, I would actually say that some of the estate is exacerbating the issues of bullying, the issues of accident levels, the issues of vandalism. The, use, the, the, the issues of breakdown of social grouping. There's not even a seating policy for children outside the classroom. Um, and so I'm very pleased because the uh, it was obviously a rude letter, but it was tough and they saw the point. And I was summoned up to, to London uh, uh, to meet the um, chief architect, Peter Benwell, um, and uh, Brian Billimore, who is the HMI for external environment to all schools in this country. And they said, well, 
Um, we understand the point you're making, um, but we don't. We can't change government policy without the research. Um, and I said, well, look, I'm happy to help with, with the research. And they said, oh, no, um, we don't have any money for research. So I said, look, I'll do a deal. If I raise the money for the research, will you undertake, provided the research concludes that so much more could be done to, do, to um, contribute to child development, if we actually developed a multifunctional uh, brief for the school landscape. And we did that deal. I then went to Berkshire and Surrey uh, counties and uh, they all chipped in. I then went to the Countryside Commission as it was then, David Coleman, the regional director, bless him, um, doubled our money. I put out a research project for somebody to research the good practice in the design, use and management of the school landscape. Remember the target, 37,000 schools. Um, I had 860 applicants for the job. <laughs> Took me a week to shortlist. <laughs> and I eventually shortlisted to First Interpreters, who was a landscape architect, Ian Parkin, uh, Eileen Adams, and David Uzzle. David Uzzle was a child psychiatrist, and uh, Eileen Adams was an art teacher who uh, was ex excellent on uh, curriculum development. Uh, the research project was co commissioned in '85. Um, and they completed their work. And uh, if I turn to a prop now, um, the outdoor classroom was published by the government. It is the first performance specification uh, for uh, the landscapes for child development. Um, and if you look at this, this is the outdoor classroom, building bulletin number 71. I can uh, give you references to this. Um, and the, the concept really is to say that we have to accept that a proportion of children in our schools today, their learning style, their learning preference is experiential. Now, it's only proportion of the schools, but if we're going to be inclusive in our education, we've got to cater for experiential learning. Mm -hmm. um, and we know now that over 80% of the national curriculum can be, can be taught outside the classroom through experiential learning. And we, uh, we produced uh, a range of books, science in school grounds, English in the school grounds, geography in the school grounds, and, and the rest of the curriculum. I just brought along those as examples. So you can actually design a landscape for experiential learning. But the school landscape is also a place where children make friends for life. How do we encourage that? Mm -hmm. How do we cater for children posing or, um, or being territorial, or taking risks. Surely there's a huge risk if we don't let children take risks. And that has a, an enormous impact upon our economic performance and our, and, and, and our business uh, for the future in terms of what we do in the rest of our lives. Um, what about reconnecting young people with natural systems? Um, you know, what about, what about landscapes that fire the imagination? Imagination and creativity is the foundation to problem solving. Um, I would actually say that if we get the landscape right, we would transform education in this country because the children will be so well equipped 
um, in meeting the demands because of their health and well-being, because the fact that they're not um, they're not locked into screens where they have a short-sightedness uh, as a problem, where they are um, taking action, activity, um, willingly, not to lose weight, but they have a different aspiration, the territorial play, the imaginative play, the taking risks play of climbing, um, all of those things. They're taking, they're taking um, you know, bodybuilding um, and, and healthy body activities without being pushed uh, to lose weight or whatever. So these are willingness. Our, um, our, our childhood, our embedded childhood behaviours are instinctive. And the education process, I'm sorry to say, um, just thinks that education is all about uh, uh, whiteboards and blackboards and, and, um, and academic performance. Um, uh, I think it's far too narrow. And we now have got to develop, uh, because the school grounds is a, is a captive audience, we need now to develop a, a, a much wiser a much more multifunctional aspect of all school grounds in this country. That's a big job. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid to say, and this is a very provocative thing to say about the Department for Education today, but their standard response, if you're talking about the landscape to schools, is, oh, we'll provide a mugger. A provide a mugger? Yeah. That is uh, a so hard, a mugger uncompromising... Is a, is a, is a multi -use games area it's exactly that which um, is basically a football it's football pitch it, with painted on the ground with some um a fence around it which has you everyone will everyone will know what i'm talking about if you can visualize it it's basically a football pitch painted on the ground which will have a basketball pitch painted on the ground as well uh, maybe tennis in it as well it has all the stuff painted in one spot exactly and that's the standard provision and that is the standard provision and that is the standard answer from the department for education today and I can tell you now that the government in the middle of the Olympics scrapped the school premises regulations. Why did they do that? Because they were very concerned to encourage um, free schools being set up by communities where the schooling system was failing them and they wanted to take the initiative. Very easy, by the way, to set up new schools. Very different, actually sustaining the investment and managing them properly. Um, and um, in the middle, middle Olympics, the public didn't understand uh, what this uh, change in law was going to mean. But by uh, scrapping the school premises regulations, the government overnight removed the statutory protection to 37,000 school playing fields. It's unbelievable. And I can tell you now, in London, and and I can show you the cases, although... It's very delicate at the moment. I can show you education authorities that are building blocks of flats on school playing fields that are already underprovided for. That is scandalous. Mm -hmm. and, and something's got to be done to stop it. And we must make a demand upon the Secretary of State uh, to prevent the losses of any more school grounds or school playing fields. And indeed, we must now reverse it to provide for all those needs I'm talking about in terms of social development, in terms of making friends for life, in terms of experiential learning, um, in terms of reconnecting young people with natural systems, um, 
uh, and the the we we set up the trust, the Learn Who Landscapes Trust, because um, we already had uh, a large number of schools already built, and what we wanted to do was to uh, produce a charitable organisation that would encourage schools to take the license to carry on and doing what they were doing. And there are some wonderful examples. Um, the Coombs School, um, just outside Reading, Susan Humphreys, wonderful head teacher. Um, and she absolutely understood it from very early on and transformed their, uh, her school grounds. Um, and she did some amazing things. Uh, I don't think she'll mind me telling you this story, but um, uh, Susan would be driving along the road and um, and uh, she'd spot a dead fox that had been killed by a car earlier. She would stop her car, she'd pick up the dead fox, put it into the boot of her car, and then she'd drive into the school. And then at, uh, at uh, lunchtime, she would assemble the school and say, I've got something to show you in the boot of my car. And she'd take out the dead fox. And the children would look at it and she'd explain how the fox had died and whether it was a male or female and what age it was. And then she said, right, shall we dig up uh, the fox that uh, I showed you six months ago? And she would, <laughs> she would do that. She would dig up the dead fox from six months ago and she would compare the fox that had just died with her. Oh, and, and, and do you remember I, I, di I did tell you that I, I buried a fox six years ago? So let's let's dig him up as well, which of course all bones, um, and um, it had a remarkable impact on children where they they understand understood the process of life and death, and there was this extraordinary moment, and I remember it very well uh, because I was there. Um, this little boy came up and said, um, "Oh oh oh, Susan." And it was wonderful that uh, he talked to her like that rather than a head teacher. Um, Susan, my, my granddad has just died. And uh, Susan, of course, immediately leapt in and said, oh, I am sorry, Grandpa George was very important to you and uh, very sorry. Anything I can do to, to help you and support you on this? He said, yes, actually, there is something. There is something you could do. Could we find a little patch so we could bury Grandpa George, and then we could dig him up in six months' time <laughs> to see what he looks like. And then I could come back mm. in 10 years' time and dig him up again and see what he looks like. <laughs> now, for me, that was a powerful indication yeah. of what that holistic education is all about. How, uh, of course, handled badly, you know, that could be very, very emotional um, and very disturbing but handled in the way that Susan handled children and empowered them um, uh, and, and engaged them. Uh, it was a, a whole education unsurpassed anywhere in this country, in my view. No, it's just, just incredible. And it's so, it's so funny how small of a world it is because our production team here, Rob, actually went to this school, which is uh, unbelievable, really. We didn't find that out until today. What are the odds? <laughs> So you seem to be doing quite well. So hidden behind the camera. So um, it shows that these these things you know do work, and you know where, where people end up. It's really amazing to see. And you you know we were talking in the break um, about his experiences at the school and how how much value it added added to him. So you know it's it's really interesting to see people that have come from these systems and, and where they are now. Um, I mean my my experience in education throughout my life has been 
I would say relatively poor. Um, you know, I, I dropped out of school when I was 16, well, out of college. Um, well, I didn't go to college really. I went and for a free few weeks and then, then decided, no, it's not for me and worked at McDonald's for a while. Um, and then I came back and got involved with various youth groups. Um, you know, I'd always loved chopping trees down and I did some things with the Wildlife Trust. Um, and just that bit of responsibility really changed me, you know, it yeah. really changed my perspective and I had responsibility I'd never had before. Yeah. And it managed to get me back involved. We ended up, I was only 16 at the time, and we ended up working with um, lots of children that had been expelled from school, only, you know, only a year or two younger than myself, uh, various children with, with learning disabilities. And of course, you as an individual have to adapt and learn yeah. very, very quickly in how to, to yes. you know, talk to some of these people and, and work with them. And you know, it had a really big impact on me. I ended up running teams for the Wildlife Trust there and got various awards from in the end. And I ended up quitting my job, actually, just to be able to volunteer more on, um, on, on these projects and, and you know, look, at, look at where I am now. But the, the change in behavior that I observed, you know, only being 16 at the time and a bit of a, um, you know, shall we say, not the best behaved child, um, was None really extraordinary. Um, you know, and, but to be able to see that at 16, the changes in other people yep. and how they were affected. You know, I had lots of young lads who were at school, been kicked out of school, yeah, you know, king of the world. They very quickly realized they couldn't do things by themselves. You know, you get them to cut a tree down, it's hard work, it's heavy. You know, you need to work as a team to be able to tackle these things. And it's quite humbling. And that the humbling side of things is very important for, for personal development. And again, you know, seeing that change in others makes you observe that change yep. in yourself yep. and it's very important to see um and then they started doing it into schools the school i used to go to they actually they actually went in and started doing that once once i'd left but my school we we had a we were very fortunate we had a lot of space um but we didn't use it particularly well you know we had breakout on the grass for a few months of the year when it was sunny we did a bit of running on a running track but a lot of the outdoor sports were, were not allowed. We weren't allowed to do rugby, too dangerous. My, um, we didn't mention it in the podcast, but my um, former head boy, Dan Stewart, was on um, a few weeks ago. He's doing incredible work, considering both went to a, not the best school. Um, you know, he's doing work on atmospheric carbon and how to turn it into a fuel source. Absolutely incredible. The one time we were allowed to play rugby, I knocked him out um, by hitting his head against a rugby post. <laughs> so, um, and you're still friends. And we're still friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, just an example of why, um, you know, some of these things are, are sort of frowned upon and why they don't want these activities to take place. We were allowed to play football, but most of the time we, we played inside with a foam ball, you know, considering we had huge provision of, of outdoor space. Javelin way out. You know, that was definitely not a sport we were allowed. Um, and anything with cricket we weren't allowed, you know, ball was too hard, I would say, and quite, quite risky, but we were a bit of a rough school. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting, but I was, I was listening to someone talking recently, is a teacher, I think it's in Yorkshire of a school, and they've started taking students out shooting of all things. Um, and again, it was a, it's a school, um, it's predominantly fed by council estates, um, very, very diverse school, very diverse backgrounds, um, various behavioral issues but the change in students has been astronomical and this head teacher takes them out and they're very lucky they've got a bit of land next to them that they've got a local farmer involved with they've got water buffalo outside the school um and all of that kind of thing and they, the kids go out shooting they've they, sh they learn to shoot the, the farmer and the gamekeeper bring in 
pigeons which they have to pluck they have to see the dead pigeon they yep. have to they, but then they, they they butcher it themselves and they're only sort of 10 or, or less some of them you know they're very young kids um and they learn about cooking and all this type of thing and it completely changes the squeamish nature they get an understanding for the natural world but they make such an important point i'll, I'll send i'll put a link to um there's a very short bbc bit of bbc coverage of the school which i'll, I'll put in the in the comments um and they sort of make the case, if you look where we're sat now, you don't need much space to have a few people sat outside. No. And you don't need much space to have a small fire. Absolutely. You know, fires don't move. Absolutely. It's perfectly safe. Um, as long as you're sensible, and kids are. Kids learn. Once they burn themselves, that's it. They don't touch it again. Absolutely. But that's a very important thing to have happen. It is. And, you know, kids need to understand these things, need to get outside. And I think if I'd been able to be taught in a lot of these environments, it would have hugely benefited yep. me as a kid. I yep. was always distracted, yep. always mucking around. If I'd have had a fire to look at, I would have looked at the fire, but I'd have been listening at the yep. same time. Yep. And that's so valuable. Yep. And we need to go back to that and encourage that type of engagement. I think it's, it's really sad that it doesn't it doesn't happen more i i think that i think that the landscape profession can do more for the state of childhood than any other profession today getting this relationship between outside learning and child development right and we have a lot of work to do and we must push the government because this is now i believe it's a crisis mm. i actually believe um, we had a stern report on the economic implications of climate change. I think we need a stern report on the economic uh, implications of the state of childhood today. Because believe me, the ramifications for the future are quite terrifying. Indeed, I would agree. It's something that's really got to be, mm. got to be addressed. You know, but there's such an emphasis on the environment now. You know, when you say, how many schools was it? 27,000? 37,000. 37,000 schools. We talk about improving the environment. Imagine if all of those had a few more trees. Absolutely. Or a slightly better landscape that wasn't hard surface. Not only is it a richer environment, but it's a richer, it will help massively enrich our urban environments. Well, you know, it's a huge opportunity. We've just done a very big project. I was chairman of the pollination board um, and we took only 500 schools and transformed those schools for pollinating insects. And uh, we started with a baseline survey uh, we looked at what was there. We then said, what, is the, what are the invertebrates that could be on this site in terms of the biome, the, the local um, um, uh, biodiversity of that part of the country? Uh, and then we said, right, let's look at all the uh, stages of the invertebrates' life and let's cater for every stage. And then we transformed the landscapes for not just the pollinating insects in terms of the, the flowers and the pollination, but also for each of the, the egg, the larvae, the pupae and the, and the adult stages. Um, now, we only did it for four or 500 schools. We ought to have done that for all 37,000 schools. Um, but the way that this operates in this country is you have a chunk of money, a million quid, to go and do that to 400 schools. Um, actually, we ought to invest significantly in the multifunctional outcomes of a landscape. And it, it will be billions of pounds we need to invest. Um, but we, the return from that investment is going to be phenomenal. Mm, exactly. Yeah, such an important point. Such an important point. The, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is how 
um, you got others involved with this. So Attenborough, for example, came in as a, as a trustee, didn't he, on the board for the Learning Through Landscapes Trust? Yes. So the we what we once we changed government policy, that then gave the license for schools to take action themselves, but they needed support. Um, so, for example, uh, too many ch uh, teachers. Uh, didn't feel comfortable about teaching outside. They'd never actually been asked to do that. Uh, too many head teachers had no knowledge of how to develop a cost plan to make the best use of the land as well as the buildings, which, of course, they were versed in doing. Um, too many teacher training colleges were failing to teach teachers about learning outside. There was no mechanism for supporting governors school governors or parent-teachers association to make demands for transforming the school landscape. So our idea was to set up an independent charity, and I set it up in 1990. Uh, and I was very lucky because the original research project, which I, I set up, uh, I involved WWF uh, and numerous other organisations to help steer uh, and this was about a national collaborative steering group. Uh, and when it came to setting up a trust, WWF said, well, uh, David Attenborough is, 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 is one of our trustees. Why don't you ask him? So I went to David. David immediately said yes. His, his daughter's a teacher. Uh, he had taught himself. Um, and he absolutely got it. And David, bless him, he attended every single board meeting for the first three or four years of the of the charity, um, and then and then um, we acknowledged that he was being so many demands made on David Attenborough that we said, why don't you become a, a patron? Um, and he is still active. He made a wonderful video the other day for for us. Um, I managed to get Jonathan Porritt, who uh, is also, of course. Uh, uh, an intellectual powerhouse in terms of sustainability. Um, so Matthew Farrow, the Queen's personal solicitor, he very kindly became a trustee. Um, we had Peter Benwell, the chief architect. So it was basically trying to pull together uh, key influential people um, to help set up the, the charity. Uh, we've been going now uh, 30 years. Um, we're just about, we're hoping to negotiate a fabulous new uh, my School, My Planet uh, project with Heritage Lottery funding, we hope. We haven't got it yet. We are hoping that that will happen. Um, and um, uh, we've had numerous programmes, so we've learnt a lot of lessons. We're the only charity that is looking at school grounds and the multifunctional outcomes for, for school grounds. Uh, but we work, of course, collaboratively with RHS, with the Wildlife Trusts, with all other charities, um, um, so uh, a place to be, for example, that deals with, I was a trustee for a place to be, which is about the emotional base in schools as well. So this is a charity that uh, I hope is going to last a long time. It has a very big job to do still. We were hoping that it would make ourselves redundant in five years <laughs> because we would have spread the word, but we failed to achieve that. Uh, so we're still very active. That's good to hear. Glad you are. Lot, lot to do. <laughs> a lot to do. That's it. So Merrick, you've been involved in quite a few interesting projects, but one um, I wanted to pick your brain on was Twyford Down in Hampshire, which is, um, as I recall it, it's the M3, where the M3 runs. Um, would you be willing to tell us a bit about 
that escapade, shall we say? Yes, yes, it's a very interesting story, but it actually shows that sometimes as a profession we're put in quite a difficult position. So when I took up my employment in the as the county landscape architect for Hampshire, uh, I worked for the county planning officer. And the county planning officer uh, said, one of the first things I want you to become involved in, Merrick, is, uh, is sorting out the route for the M3 as it bypasses Winchester. Uh, bearing in mind that the motorway had come down to almost Winchester and up from Southampton, and there was this missing link. Um, and it had been debated in the 70s when uh, I wasn't at the county. So I said, yes, of course, I'll do as I'm told. And I worked then with the Department for Transport. Um, and, of course, Hampshire County Council was the highway authority, but not the planner of motorways. The motorway infrastructure is designed by the Department of Transport. Um, and I quickly came up against a, a blank wall with the engineers not listening to what I had to say about the environmental implications of the route that was becoming their favoured route. Um, so I wrote a report, uh, presented it to, my, to the county planning officer and explained that there's no way the county could support the route that the government were proposing. And uh, he looked at my report and he agreed. He said, absolutely. So those of you who know about local government, there are quite protracted processes before it gets presented to the elected members. And we had a pre-agenda officers meeting, so, and then we had a pre-agenda chairman's briefing, and then you had the meeting that made the decisions. The pre-agenda officers meeting, my report was presented, and I explained to the officers, the officers being the chief executive, the county architect, the county planning officer, all the chief officers that, uh, that controlled the county. This was a big authority, by the way. Um, you know, £1.5 billion budget is a big, big authority. Anyway, I was halfway through my presentation to the officers and the county solicitor said, stop, Merrick, this report is not going to go to the elected members. And I said, but hang on a second. It's my job. I'm the county landscape architect here. I am bound by my boss to tell you that this route is very, very damaging to the environment, to the national heritage. Mm. And the solicitor said, no, um, my instruction from the members is we've got to build this motorway quickly. My answer to the members is that if you want to build this motorway quickly, support whatever route is put up by the government. And I said, no, 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 no. If the members understood the environmental implications of this route and then overruled me, fine. At least they have the information upon which they can make a decision. Mm -hmm. The county solicitor stopped my report. It never went to the elected members. So I then said to the county solicitor and chief executive and my boss, I'm going to take my own private action against this route. Mm. Um, and to cut a long story short, this was a motorway route that would destroy the original prehistoric settlement of Winchester. Remember, Winchester was the first capital city of England. And uniquely, the Romans 
um, didn't build Winchester on the prehistoric landscape. It moved the centre of Winchester to the other side of the Itchen Valley, leaving the Iron Age and Bronze Age villages and field systems and fortifications um, and all their burial sites absolutely intact. Hmm. So nowhere wow. in this country can you go and see the origins because, of course, we just build our towns and cities on top of each, um, other. Top of each yeah. other. Here, you could see at one glance the field systems, the village site, the, 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 uh, the uh, dew ponds, um, the burial mounds, the fortifications, all still intact. Wow. And um, I then presented my evidence to the inquiry privately and on behalf of the Landscape Institute. They were, had the courage to, to support me basically saying that uh, this route would destroy one of the heaviest protected landscapes in the country, two schedule entry monuments destroyed, two sites of special scientific interest destroyed, and a cavity into the area of outstanding natural beauty. Five national designations in the space of one and a half miles. Hmm. Absolutely unbelievable. unbelievable, unacceptable, as there were two alternative routes. And one was a tunnelling route, and I ended up, uh, bless him, uh, going to uh, 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 John Baring of Baring's Bank at the time and Union Bank Suisse, and they were prepared to put up £120 million to build the tunnel privately. <laughs> and wow. on a pound toll for 80 vehicles a day, they could have handed the tunnel back to the government after 15 years and taken 15% return on the investment. Anyway, the story ends. Uh, I went to the High Court with two colleagues. They were both politicians from the City Council. Uh, we, we took the government to the High Court on the basis that they had failed to comply with the Environmental Impact Assessment Directive, 1985. Um, and the High Court found against us. We had costs awarded against us. Our costs are two barristers. We had to have a barrister, English barrister and a, a European barrister, uh, were about 80,000 just for the three days. Um, now it's begun beginning to be very edgy. The money was beginning to become quite serious. Our families were obviously, uh, our homes were being threatened. Um, and eventually I was by myself uh, and uh, we made a complaint, uh, made a complaint to the European Commission. The European Commission looked at the, our complaint, looked at the government's response and found in our favour. Hmm. And okay. they then... <laughs> They then issued an Article 169 letter to the UK government, which is the start of formal legal process against a member state for failing to comply with the European directive. Oh, wow. Two weeks after that letter arrived, the government invited tenders. Now, if you and I behaved like that, we'd be locked up. Yeah. In other words, they ignored the formal legal um, letter that started... Uh, proceedings against a member state. Hmm. Unbelievable. So um, then, um, and this wouldn't have happened in the UK, a message was given to me by Ludovic Kramer, who's the legal advisor to Ripa de Miana. Ripa de Miana was the environmental commissioner uh, for, Europe, for Europe. 
And the message was, Merrick, don't go to the next stage, which basically was to go to the High Court and Court of Appeal, because we had the letter, the legal letter, that basically said the High Court was wrong, mm. that the case that Merrick, Barbara and David had put uh, in the High Court was right, and the High Court action was wrong, the High Court decision was wrong. And I was then, as I said, I was then by myself because the other two began to be very edgy because of the financial implications. And I notified the Treasury Solicitor I was going to go to the High, the Court of Appeal. That was happening on the Thursday. Um, and on the Monday, I had this message from uh, uh, Ludovic Kramer saying, Merrick, don't do it. There's been a deal between John Major and Jacques Delors. And I said, don't be ridiculous. You don't get a deal between heads of state over a bit of asphalt round Winchester. He said, you don't understand. If you win, and you will win on Thursday, mm -hmm. you will serve an injunction stopping a 50 million pound contract for which you will be responsible for. Mm. But 80 other motorways, power stations, um, uh, nuclear and others, uh, trunk roads will all have to stop in the UK hmm. because they they are all relevant to the legislation upon which you will win your appeal on Thursday. All right. And my barrister then said, "Well, what's going to happen now? Because we will win on Thursday. You will be. We will serve an injunction on the government to stop the contract." Um, but if, there's, if this deal is correct, uh, you, the actual action in the High Court will take place because it'll take weeks of go, going through, will actually take place in November. So this was in the spring. Um, and if there's any truth in this deal between Jack Delors and John Major, and that letter is withdrawn, you will have not a leg to stand on and they will take everything from you, Merrick. They have to win. Mm. They cannot afford to lose. Mm -hmm. And the deal was that in exchange for Jack Delors uh, 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 taking back the letter, uh, John Major would support the Maastricht Treaty, which caused enormous disruption within the Conservative Party anyway. What, what is the treaty? The Maastricht Treaty was all about the restructuring and the budgets for Europe. It mm. was massive. Hmm. And, and the UK were bailing out supporting it. But in exchange, that was the basis of the deal. That is a massive story. Yeah. That is a massive story. To this day, I failed Twyford Down. I, I failed to do my job as county landscape architect because I ducked out at the last minute and it haunts me uh, to this day and it'll go to the grave. Hmm. But the manipulation behind the scenes uh, in how they got to that decision is utterly disgraceful. So for example, the first public inquiry, neither the countryside agents responsible for AONBs uh, nor English Heritage responsible for scheduled monuments either gave written evidence or appeared hmm. at the public inquiry. Unbelievable. The public documentation showed the scheduled monument as a small star and the motorway missing it. Hmm. The actual 
plan was that the entire scheduled engine monument was taken out by the motorway. Hmm. Another scheduled engine monument was missing from the drawings completely. Um, the manipulation by Winchester College, the warden of Winchester College, uh, was Lord Aldington, Toby Lowe of uh, Count Tolstoy fame. And Lord Aldington always said it was his idea to put the motorway through Twyford Down. Now, in 1922, very important year, because that was the year that a chap just up the road from Winchester found the tomb of Tutankhamun. Mm -hmm. A builder came along and put housing plots all over Twyford Down. Two dons from the college knew how important archaeologically Twyford Down was in 1922. These two teachers bought Twyford Down to protect it from development. And one of them died in 1955, and the other gave Twyford Down to Winchester College hmm. to protect it from housing and roads. Huh. And I went to see uh, Toby Lowe, uh, Lord Aldington, and he said, oh, Mr. Denton Thompson, you're so badly informed. There was no restrictive covenant on this land. It was a gift. And I said, but Lord Aldington, that's the purity of the gift. I give you this. I trust you. I'm not going to strap you up with restrictive covenants. Mm -hmm. And this benign, very important vice chairman of the Conservative Party flew into this amazing rage <laughs> because he knew jolly well he was wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, there were other manipulations which I probably won't talk about now. <laughs> That's all right, okay. But it does show the, the challenge of, of how you, you know, of what you have to face up with. And there's so many instances of, you know, working with developers where you know they're not doing what's best. But what do you do? You know, you, quite often people find themselves in very difficult positions where you know something's not being done correctly. But if you stand up to it, that's your job. Well, can I just it's, say that... It did have an extraordinary ending mm. because I then went to the leader of the Hampshire County Council and I said, I, I, you know, I've created real embarrassment for you. Uh, and I went to say that to him because I'd just been promoted. Mm. And I said, why did you promote me? I have made your life hell. <laughs> he said, oh, but Merrick, you were never given the chance to explain the environmental implications and you took your own action. Mm. He said the members of the county council, cross-party, Labour, Liberal Democrat and Tory, we trust everything you say <laughs> now. We don't trust anybody else mm. because you tell it as it is. Yeah. Even, even going to the nth degree to spend £300,000 on a private action against the government we know you mean business, and we want you in a senior position in the county council. Hmm. Isn't that a fantastic uh, uh, thing to say about a politician? It is. Who had the courage to stand up and say, no, actually, we need to listen to this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, I never did. I never stood up to, to get promotion. But what an amazing outcome and hmm. what an amazing authority for the county council to actually promote me. Even though I'd created merry hell for the uh, the elected members and senior officers of the county council, that's it. But I mean, the thing is, it, it, 
it is so important that people do stand up for these things. I mean, um, you know, in my, my short time in the profession, you know, I like to think I've ended up in a lot of the positions I have done because I've been willing to point out when things are, in my view, not being done correctly or things are being missed or things are not being delivered as, as they should be. You know, as you know, I had a real fight yep. with education. Yes, you did. Um, I failed my master's, yep. managed to pass in the end, but I think that was only after I threatened the universities with, with legal action, um, you know, similarly to, to what you did, independent yep. um, of everybody, you know, despite being, um, you know, involved with various organizations, involved with regulation and all sorts of universities. Um, you know, across across the country, um, and but because of that, and because of raising my voice, and really, you know, giving them what for as much as I could, um, we now have masters level apprenticeships, and um, you know, level three apprenticeships. So now people don't have to take that same route through education. It's much more varied, and now hopefully, well, as also as part of that, it's not. You know, it's not solely my doing, but I was a, a serious like thorn in everyone's side. I think during the the time and when this was, this whole discussion started, um, you know, we're now broadening the landscape profession significantly to in, to encourage people from different backgrounds, and so hopefully courses will have to adapt to support people from these varying backgrounds, so it doesn't become these linear routes that have developed in these silos that we've always had before. Well, now I think we are all in safe hands. <laughs> because you will take over and I have every trust in in you I think you're a remarkable character and mm. uh, and and you will persevere you will demand the very best out of our landscapes <laughs> and um, that's fabulous well I'll certainly try <laughs> <laughs> um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about really was um, if you're if you'd be so willing is a bit about your your personal life and how you got into the landscape profession to begin with, because you mentioned you had a, you know, a, an upbringing in the Falkland Islands um, and in Africa, um, and I was just wondering about if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about how you developed and how you were brought into the profession. Because a lot of people don't hear about landscape um, as a profession, as a sector, or anything like that. And um, there's so much opportunity, and I think it's really important to hear how other people have got into the environmental world and what sort of route has brought them here, because it's often you know, Dusty, which we didn't really mention in the podcast with him, he was previously a circus performer, of all things. Um, you know, and now he's the president of the European Green Roof Federation. I'll have to rephrase this. He's the president of the Federation... I might just leave it out. <laughs> I'll start again. Um, you know, we interviewed Dusty Gedge recently on, on green roofs, and he is, um, you know, the top guy in Europe for, for green roofs, really. Um, he's doing an incredible amount of work, and he started as a circus performer. You know, it's so strange how some people come into a lot of these roles and things, and it's often not the route you would expect. So if you could expand a bit on how you came in, that would be, I think it would be really interesting. I can't really answer that without explaining about my dear father, um, who... who who was in the colonial service. That's not something that I can admit these days. Uh, but I actually think that uh, there were some really positive outcomes for the, in the colonial service. So um, I was uh, born in, in, in Holland. I went out to, to Africa. I was born in Holland because my sister had died of malaria. Um, and uh, when my mother was pregnant, uh, the decision was to send me to Holland for, uh, to be born. Um, I spent time then for the first uh, six years um, in uh, in East Africa, 
And I really loved things like antlions. So I don't even know about antlions, but antlions exist in the overhang from buildings and they create tunnels of sand. And the ants have to walk through this minefield. And if they slip on one of these funnels, the antlion sits at the bottom and flicks sand at the ant. And eventually the ant loses balance and is caught and killed by the antlion. Now for a child, this was terrifying mm. because you don't know what's under the sand mm. and, and, and this death of this poor struggling ant. So I was fascinated in the detail of landscape. Um, and um, my father at the time was in the uh, Department of Agriculture in Tanzania, in Tanganyika as it was then. And he, by the way, set out some of the game reserves. So Lake Manyara uh, game reserve, he did all the um, uh, estate surveying for for some of the big game reserves in, in East Africa um, in the 40s, this was. Um, um, he then became colonial secretary in the Falkland Islands. Um, and uh, I spent my time in the Falklands. I, my, my love of natural systems um, and my love of the arts, because I was a very keen uh, sculptor, uh, actually, and uh, ceramic artist. Um, uh, so I wanted something that put those two things together. Um, uh, and um, uh, so here was something... Uh, by the way, my, my school prizes, the only two that I remember I won was the Gale Entomology Prize and the uh, Senior Sculpture Prize. So that showed my contrasting interests of the science and the arts. Um, and in fact, it was a GLC landscape architect who came to talk to my school. Uh, and I knew instantly that this is the profession for me. Um, uh, and I just, uh, uh, I loved that. Um, that interaction between the arts and the sciences. Um, am I a great designer? No, but I believe that I have contributed to environmental and landscape policy. Um, uh, and um, my attention now on multifunctional outcomes from our rural landscapes at this moment in time when we are um, reconfiguring our relationship with the farming industry um, I think needs as much imagination as creativity as as um, a design of a uh, uh, of an urban space in our towns. Um, so I've I, I've been totally spoiled as a child, but totally spoiled as an adult, <laughs> because I love every second of it, um, and I shall carry on contributing to this discussion until the day I die. At least I hope I do. <laughs> And I hope you do as well. You know, so much you've given so much, and there's still so much to do. Yeah, you know, we need so much to do. We need some. We need powerful voices to help push things through and 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 guide. You know, and as you've done, help guide. You know, newer members to the profession as well, and inspire others. So, you know, I want to say a huge thank you for your for your time. I think it's a really nice note to end on. Um, and again, you know, thank you so much for inviting us up here to Scotland, um, for hosting us, and of course, coming on and giving your time. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more about landscape and how we can design better spaces for people and nature, why not check out our previous episode with John Little, where we talk about designing in complexity. And you should be able to see a link for this in the description or floating around here at some point shortly. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to friends and colleagues who might also be interested in this conversation. 
And a huge thank you to our sponsor, Beans, accountants, and incredibly kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, and of course, Borland here in Lockte, where we film this episode. See you next time. Mm-hmm.